All right. Well, yes, I am back, and yes, I had a cold or have a cold, but it's just about over. But it's so good to see everybody tonight. Okay, announcements. Um, Pre-trib is next week, so on Tuesday night next week, y'all can go out and have a party somewhere because you don't have to come to Bible class. And then um, sign-up sheets are posted at the Fellowship Hall for the Christmas dinner that will be uh, a week from this coming Sunday on December 11th. Church is providing ham and turkey. And so everybody else needs to bring sides and desserts. Pray for Jeff Phipps and his team in Brazil. They'll be going down uh, in two weeks on the 13th to the 21st of Brazil to, to Brazil. And so pray for them. And then Christmas is on Sunday, so we will have our Christmas service on Sunday morning with communion uh, instead of on New Year's Eve. Okay. And for the really, really, really good news, Eager had sent out a prayer letter I don't know when it came out. Do you, you remember, Barb, when Eager sent that out? Was that this morning? Okay. So I text back and forth everything with him. I lose track. But in there, he talked about the electric, electrical problem, which, of course, I had announced earlier, and the problems that they have with power. And he's been trying to get a generator as well as solar panels, which are difficult to find and come by. And so, and, and also they're getting very much more expensive. So as he sent that out this morning, I got a call early this afternoon that somebody wanted to know, well, how much is that going to cost? And I asked Eager, he told me, and they said, well, there'll be a check to, I will send a check to West Houston Bible Church today. So that need was taken care of, a solar panel array as well as uh, generator, so that will that will be great great for them. And Eager was quite thrilled and great grateful that that God answered that prayer so so soon. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, the flower fades, and the grass withers, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, and then we'll get into our study of his word tonight. Let's pray. Our Father, what a privilege it is for us to come and study your word together, to be enlightened in truth, to see the examples that you give us in Scripture of what happens when we are obedient to you and what happens when there is disobedience and the implications of that for culture and history, for everything related to the involvement of fallen people. We're thankful for your grace that even though we are sinners, And if we catalog the number of mental attitude sins we each commit every day, it would stun us. But you love us, you care for us, and you, through your Holy Spirit, strengthen us every day. And slowly and incrementally, we grow and mature. So, Father, we thank you for your grace. Now, Father, as we study tonight, help us to understand your word and to see its implications and applications. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's open our Bibles to Judges chapter 12. Judges chapter 12, we will go through the whole chapter tonight. It's only 15 verses. 
and uh, the last, uh, the last, what is it, about uh, seven of them are pretty short, not a whole lot of information. So we are studying the end of the period of Jephthah's rule, leadership as, the, as a judge. And the thing that we have been seeing as we continue to study through judges is this cycle of deterioration that comes as a result of moral relativism and the idolatry of the people that once they abandon God and turn to the idols made with human hands to be the source of their stability, their happiness, their prosperity, then everything began to unravel. And what happens when we get involved in rebellion against God and we continue to turn our backs on him and forget about his grace and no longer depend upon him, then God is going to bring divine discipline into our lives. And when a nation does that, then the automatic uh, laws of divine establishment and their negative consequences for failure to observe them begins to uh, kick into gear. So that when you have personal irresponsibility toward God, which relates to our volitional responsibility to God, the first divine institution, when that begins to go and everyone does what's right in their own eyes, and that starts to domino and destroy marriage, the second divine institution, and then that dominoes, and when marriage collapses, family collapses, and as that takes place, you have in, throughout history, you have a complete distortion of the role of men and women, and men no longer act as men, and women no longer act as women. And the result is there is complete confusion as to roles and responsibilities of men and women, and we've, we see that. We're going to see it even more when we get not only into Samson, but beyond Samson, the absolute impact of paganism on these role relationships between the sexes. And then that leads to a collapse of government and a collapse of the nation. Those, those just, just domino. So we'll be looking at that. And what we're beginning to see here, uh, we'll look at the beginning of this chapter. And the last episode that we looked at last week had to do with understanding uh, Jephthah's vow and the consequence of that vow. And a lot of times you will find people who refer to it as a rash vow, which I have done in the past, or a foolish vow, which I have said in the past, and it's really neither. It is an apostate vow. It is a vow that is consistent with his pagan presuppositions. And it demonstrates that. So that it's, it's, it's foolish in one sense, as opposed to the wisdom of Scripture, everything else is foolish. The fool has said in his heart there is no God, and when you're acting as if there's no God, then that's foolishness. But it is, it is not just, it has to be articulated what that means by foolish. We all do foolish things every day, and it's a different category. It's the natural consequence of the presuppositions of living in a, in a morally relative universe, thinking that there's, uh, that there are no absolutes. And it is also indicative of the denial of the creator creature distinction. As we've seen, these are the beliefs that undergird, undergird everything. So we see this collapse in, in Israel. There's a military victory, of course, with, with Jephthah over the Ammonites. But it is not a victory that is going to really last long. It doesn't solve anything because the people have not turned back to God. So we see a consequence, an unintended consequence of Jephthah's actions in Judges 12.1. After the battle, we don't know how long, sometime after the battle, we read, then the men of Ephraim, gathered together, crossed over toward Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the people of Ammon 
and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house down on you with fire. Now, isn't that interesting? See, there's no indication in the text up to this point that Jephthah ever had sent out a call for troops among the general population of the other tribes. All we're told is he went throughout Gilead calling, uh, calling men to arms. But he has not, there's no indication he went across the Jordan. Remember that he is on the, we'll put the map up here, he is in what is called the Transjordan area, which is on the east side of the Jordan River. So to the north here, this blue area is the Sea of Galilee. In the south, you have the Dead Sea. And the blue line that runs from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea is the Jordan River. Uh, two and a half tribes were given land on the east side, the Transjordan side of, uh, of the river. And the other tribes are here. And what this episode shows is that there's a fragmentation of the nation. That is what happens. When we live on carnality, it creates division among people. Uh, when you read in Galatians chapter uh, 2, verses uh, 19, 20, and 21, the works of the flesh, you have divisiveness, factions, things like that are the result of of uh, the role of the sin nature. And so it creates a fragmentation eventually of a culture and of a nation. And you see, begin to see everything come apart, the wheels start to come off, the seams start to burst, and you see a fragmentation and implosion of the nation. And so we're going to see that here, and we will see it again when we get towards the end of the book, with the uh, civil war with the tribe of Benjamin. So there's actually two civil wars that take place during this time period, the one between Ephraim and those in the Transjordan, and then later from the tribe of, of Benjamin. And we could draw a lot of parallels with what's going on in our own culture as people become uh, more and more committed to uh, radically opposing worldviews and seek to completely cut themselves off from their uh, historical roots. So here we have on the Transjordan, we have um, at uh, we have Jephthah over here. I was looking for uh, Mizpah over here, which is where he was he lived, but it's not on this map. Uh, and over here you have Ephraim. Ephraim is in the hill country of Samaria. And so they're going to come across, uh, and here we see on this map has Zaphon listed here, and it's this area where you have um, the hill country of, of Samaria that is the part that was the, the allotted to the tribe of Ephraim. And so they cross over and they have a confrontation with Jephthah here at uh, Zephon. So then we go on to read that um, they come and they confront Jephthah and they say, why didn't you invite us to the battle? So there, And then they threaten him. They say, we'll burn your house down with fire upon you. So there's not left much left of his house. See, there's a double entendre here. This section is filled with several word plays. And the double entendre here is that house not only stands for a physical dwelling, but it also relates to a dynasty. We will later talk about the house of David and see that, uh, that terminology. And so that talks about that dynasty that God established from King David. Well, Jephthah has, in effect, burned his own dynasty down to the ground in terms of offering his daughter as a burnt offering. So there's an irony here that uh, he's already sacrificed his daughter as a burnt offering, and now they're threatening to burn his house down, but there's nothing really left. His daughter's gone, his future's gone, uh, he is left with nothing. And so he has faced that personal crisis and created quite a mess, 
as along with a lot of self-induced misery because of his bad decision, which was not based on the word of God, but was based on uh, his own uh, cultural syncretism with the pagan religions around him. And that has left him in a position of hopelessness. And as we come into chapter 12, what we see is a couple of things that we should uh, pay attention to, and that is that first there's a shift of focus from Jephthah's paganization, which led to his vow, to the self-absorbed arrogance of the Ephraimites. The Ephraimites are actually viewed as worse than the sin of Jephthah because they have uh, given themselves over to their sin nature. They've given themselves over to uh, their emotions and to emotional sinning. And so they are being governed by resentment and anger and hatred for those on the other side of the Jordan who, in their thinking, have got, gotten all this glory and honor because they have defeated uh, the enemy. They have defeated them, and they got left out. So they're motivated, it seems, by the desire for plunder on the one hand and the desire for glory on the other hand. And for the second time in this book, they have been cut out of the picture. Uh, Remember, when you go through um, this study, that they were... They were mad at Gideon because Gideon didn't call them to battle either. So again, this is one more map that shows where Zaphon is located, and that's where these negotiations are taking place. And just by way of review here, uh, Jephthah, we looked at his the way he handled situations, the conflict with the Ammonites was that that he negotiated with them and he sought to manipulate them. That's his, that's his strategy. And then he tried to manipulate God with the food, with the vow, the pagan vow of sacrificing whatever came of the house, out of the house to, uh, to greet him. We studied his vow and now in this last section we're studying the civil war with the Ephraimites. So to look at the first three verses of this section, We've already looked at verse 1. In verse 2 we read, And Jephthah said to them, so this is his response, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Amnon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. So when I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? So as we look at this, we see that the opening verse of verse 1 states the case of the, uh, the Ephraimites, and they're going to come to battle against uh, their brothers over on the other side of the, of the Jordan. And in verse 1, we also see the use of of this word reeve. Now this is another interesting wordplay here, and it brings out something in the text. You know, these wordplays aren't just there because we're having a little fun or the Holy Spirit is doing this to get your attention about something. Uh, he's really making a point, and you have to think about these things. So you have this little word reeve, and this is also a technical word for bringing a lawsuit against somebody or bringing a case against somebody in a court of law. And its general meaning is has, has to do with a strife or dispute or a contention. And so when the Ephraimites call him, uh, confront uh, Gideon, excuse me, this is from uh, Judges 8.1, when they confront Gideon back in Judges, they reprimand him sharply. That's a, when we see this word reeve, and the first time we see the Ephraimites come along. And so we see that they're angry, they're resentful, but Gideon is able to negotiate with them, and he is uh, very sophisticated in the way he responds to them, and so they back off. But this time they're not going to back off. They've been apparently nurturing this kind of resentment against the tribes on the Transjordan side. 
And so now they're going to uh, react harshly. We see this word reeve repeated in verse 2 of Judges 12. uh, Jephthah says, My people and I were in a great struggle with the people of Ammon. And when I called you, you did not deliver me out of their hands. Now the word that is translated great struggle is our word reeve. But this is an odd verse to translate. It's a little awkward, and when you try to bring it over, if you do a word-for-word translation, it just seems very stilted and convoluted in, in, uh, in English. And the way it reads is actually with the beginning of the statement is not, in Hebrew is not my people and I were in a great struggle. It starts off with the statement, I am a contentious man or a man of con- contentiousness. And this is emphasizing something. It's not translated that way in English, but what's interesting is, and I put the Septuagint up here because for a couple of reasons, uh, it it's, follows the Hebrew almost word for word. Now what's interesting here is that a lot of times, especially in the Pentateuch and in certain other books, there's a lot of debate today about how, that, how much value there is to looking at the Septuagint. Remember the Septuagint was a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament about 200 to 250 years before Christ. So by then the Old Testament canon had been completed. The Masoretic text that we use dates in its, in its final form really dates back to about the 8th century A.D. So from about 200 B.C. to 800 A.D., how many years have gone by? About a 1,000 years. And there are some, in some places, some significant differences between the Septuagint and the, the, the Masoretic text. Now that opens a whole issue that I'm not going to get into tonight, but I'm going to give you a preview that that's a big part of what we're going to be talking about at the Chafer Conference in March. And this is going to be very good for a lot of pastors because a lot of this information is, is new. A lot of this information wasn't even available to us 40 years ago when I took, uh, every seminary student takes a course on Old Testament introduction and New Testament introduction, and we didn't have a lot of this information um, 40 years ago. And the reason is that, for example, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and so Randy Price is going to be here, and Randy's done a lot of work on the Dead Sea Scrolls. He's excavated about 90% of the plateau out from the old visitor center. Those of you who've been with me before, Randy told me a couple of months ago that during the COVID period, there were a lot of improvements made at different places. They tore down the old visitor center, and they put a new visitor center up. And it's, it's uh, much nicer than the other one. But anyway, Randy's done a lot of work there, so Randy's going to talk about the value of the Qumran scrolls because one of the things you discover in places is the Qumran agrees with the Septuagint. And then there's the Samaritan Pentateuch. And because the Samaritans never accepted the rest of the Old Testament, only the first five books. And so you have a lot of places where the Samaritan Pentateuch agrees with uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls and agrees with the Septuagint against the Masoretic text. So how do we handle all of this? This is all new stuff. When I was in seminary, everybody talked about the Dead Sea Scrolls, but nobody outside of a small group of scholars in Israel had access to them. But what's happened since then, in the early 90s, there was some sort of uh, kerfuffle about the fact that nobody had access to them, and it had been, what, about 40 years, 40 to 50 years since they had been discovered. And so why didn't other scholars have access to them? Well, a lot's changed in the last 20 years, and I have a lot of the Qumran scrolls that we that they've worked on on my laptop now. They're available to a wide array of, of scholars. You can get them through Lagos and things like that. But 
So we're looking at some of these differences, and all this has to do with textual criticism and everything, and it's not something that says, well, we're going to, we're, we, how can we be sure we have the Word of God? None of the differences affect anything such, at like, such as prophecy. They don't affect anything like the Trinity or the nature of God or anything like that. But there are interesting places where there's a little difference. And so what you have here is one of those places where you have a rendering in the Greek of the Septuagint, um, something that mirrors what's going on in the Hebrew text, and is not exactly the way it's translated in a lot of English translations. And so what it says in the Septuagint, uh, I translated it into English this afternoon, uh, he said to them, Ephraim, he said to them, Ephraim, I was a contentious man. And that's the idea of I was a contentious man or I was a warrior. Um, I and my people and the sons of Ammon who humbled or oppressed me greatly, and I cried out to you, and you did not deliver me from their hands. So that's how the Septuagint reads that. But the emphasis in both the Hebrew and the Septuagint is on the first statement, I am a contentious man. And so when we look at this, uh, Daniel Block in his commentary of Judges had this little chart that uh, Jephthah's life has been marked by contention, by this this conflict. There's conflict within his own family. Remember, he was the bastard son of a prostitute. His father was Gilead, but his mother is the lowest of the lowest in the social, uh, social ladder, as a as a prostitute. And so once he came of age, his brothers kick him out of the family because they don't want to share their inheritance with him. So there's contention within his own tribe. And then he has contention with the foreign enemy. And now he has contention with another Israelite uh, tribe. So there is, his life is marked by these these conflicts. And what he says to them in uh, verse 12 is that I was in this conflict with the people of Ammon. And then the Septuagint and the Old Latin, that, that, that's not the Vulgate. The Vulgate was the translation of Jerome of the uh, Hebrew Old Testament into Latin. This preceded that. And the Syriac. So you have three different translations of the Old Testament that agree that this phrase, who oppressed us, is part of the Old Testament text. Now, I don't know if it had, should or should not. That is interesting, though, that that is there. Those are the kinds of differences that you see. It's not anything that affects any doctrine. It clarifies something that you already know from reading the text. And it's very possible that a scribe could have just added that for clarification, which happens at times. Maybe some scribe writes a note on the side, and then the next scribe that comes along and copies that manuscript puts that into the text. Those kinds of errors happen every now and then. But they're easy to figure out. So this is the issue. There's this conflict going on, which is, just follows Jephthah through his whole life. And he says then in verse 3, So when I saw that you would not deliver me, this is the Hebrew word, verb yasha, which is where we get our word Yeshua for Savior or deliverance. When I saw that you would not deliver me, I took my life in my own hands or in my hands and crossed over against the people of Ammon, and the Lord delivered me. Notice there's a subtle jab here. He's saying, you wouldn't deliver me, but then the Lord delivered me. He delivered them into my hand. Why then have you come up this day to fight against me? I, and, and notice he makes the claim back in verse 2 that uh, he called them. He, he sent out a message. Now, we don't know if he did or not because nowhere else in the text does it say that he, he made a call, uh, called them to arms. But it's possible he did, but it's also possible that he's just making this up on the fly in order to uh, ameliorate their feelings, to make them feel like, oh, I did send something, but you didn't come. So he's trying to turn the tables on them um, by making something up, and that would fit his character uh, that we know uh, at, at this time. 
So he says, so why have you come up this day to fight against me? So in verse 4 we read that this whole thing, this whole negotiation falls apart and they go to war against each other. Now Jephthah gathered together all the men of Gilead and fought against Ephraim. And the men of Gilead defeated Ephraim because they said, uh, that is the claim of the Ephraimites was, you Gileadites are fugitives of Ephraim among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites, uh, which is another difficult, convoluted statement. But what he's basically saying is that you guys just ran away. You left us. You don't have any tribal alignment, and you went over there to do your own thing over in Gilead. So you're not tied to a tribe anymore. You're just worthless uh, men basically without a name and without any value. And then they make this claim that, about uh, uh, among the Ephraimites and among the Manassites, which is seems like it's some sort of uh, idiom that would indicate as it is with the Ephraimites, so it is with the Manassites. In other words, if we feel this way about you, so does so do the Manassites. Now, remember, half tribe of Manasseh is in the northern part of the uh, Transjordan area. I'll go back to a map real quick. See, this is East Manasseh up here. West Manasseh is on the uh, Cisjordan side, and south of there is Ephraim. So what the Ephraimites are going to claim, and, and Zaphon is somewhere up here, is that you've basically cut yourself off from everybody, and if we feel that way, then the people of Manasseh feel that way, which are on your border to the west and also north of you. And so you guys are just worthless and you're hemmed in. So they're just, he just, they're just trying to make a uh, propaganda case uh, against them. So what happens is they go into a situation. Uh, in verse 5, the Gileadites seized the fords of the Jordan. So they have the upper hand now because you can't cross the the um, the uh, Ephraimites have crossed over to the east side of the Jordan. They can't escape if the fords are in the hands of the Gileadites. So there, the Gileadites have control of the of the fords over the over the Jordan, and they said, and that then this is descriptive. When any Ephraimite who escaped said, "Let me cross over." The men of Gilead would say to him, are you an Ephraimite? And they'd say, no. Of course they'd say no. They don't want to get their head cut off. And then there was a secret word. Then they would say to him, then say, Shibboleth. So you have two letters in the Hebrew alphabet that basically look like our W. And there's a dot over the right side, and it's a SH, and if it's over the left side, it's an S. So you have to have good glasses to be able to read Hebrew and spot the dots. But if you have a speech impediment, and which is apparently what was going on here, is there's some sort of speech impediment or accent or something so that the Ephraimites could not properly pronounce the SH. And so that was their password. And if they would say, uh, say Shibboleth, and he would say Sibboleth, for he could not pronounce it right. And then that would, that would betray him, and so they would then uh, capture him and uh, kill him. And there fell at that time 42,000 Ephraimites. Now this is really amazing. Because when you, we get to the civil war with the uh, tribe of Manasseh uh, a little later on, what you find is that uh, 25,000 in the tribe of Benjamin are slaughtered. And it almost wipes out the tribe of Benjamin. But Benjamin was always a smaller tribe. Ephraim was apparently a larger tribe. But this is a major event here. 42,000 of Ephraim are slaughtered. This decimates the tribe of Ephraim. And so this is what, what the result of this implosion of the nation, one tribe against another tribe. And it doesn't go away after this at all. It just exacerbates until there's a further 
Civil War uh, later on in, in the book. So the result of all of this is that we are given a picture of what happens to a culture and a nation that rejects God, rejects the divine absolutes, and so they're, everyone's doing what's right in their own eyes. Jephthah's doing what's right in his own eyes. Uh, the Ephraimites are doing what's right in their eyes. The Gileadites are doing what's right in their eyes. And this is a brutal slaughter. And that is what happens when you get into this kind of a situation is the anger and the hostility and the brutality just is unleashed without any restraint whatsoever. So this would be, if these numbers are correct, and I believe they are, but if this is true, this is a much worse disaster than what happens in Benjamin as described in Judges chapter 20, uh, verses 35 and, and 46. But what's even more obvious here is obvious by its absence, and that is there's no statement from God. And the silence of God is deafening. He is allowing them to self-destruct and to reap the consequences of their own carnality. One of the things that is pointed out back in Judges chapter 9, when this prophet came along and tells this uh, parable about the vine, uh, that he, what he's basically saying is people get the leaders that they deserve. A culture gets the leaders that they deserve, and the leadership of Abimelech was what the Samaritans, um, of those in Samaria, rather, that, that what they deserved. And Gide, um, excuse me, Jephthah is who they deserve. Uh, and this is the consequences of their bad decisions. And so you can apply that to what's going on in the U.S. We get the leaders we deserve. Now, that doesn't mean you deserve them or I deserve them. And in many parts of this country, we have been able to elect leaders that are uh, outstanding, that have a great degree of integrity, that are believers and who seek to do the right thing. But the number of people who are voting in a way that conforms to the um, the absolutes of Scripture and the divine institutions is dwindling. And at every voting season, assuming all things being equal and we have honest elections, um, it's falling apart. We, ha- we are being outnumbered. And you see that... Um, as you go from one generation uh, to the next, there are fewer that are involved in any church. And an example of where we're headed, we're, we're, what I've seen is we're about 50 to 100 years behind England, and the census has come out uh, in England today, was reported that England is no longer a Christian nation. Christianity uh, up to now has been the majority religion Although it was a slim majority, it is now about 47% of the people uh, align with Christianity. And the rest, you have many that are uh, Muslim, and you have many that are just secular atheists. And so you see the culture falling apart because there's no ground anymore for absolutes or for integrity. And that is where a lot of, a lot of Europe is just uh, a few steps behind them. And we're a few steps behind that. And it just seems like the wheels are coming off all over the world, and we see one disaster after another. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't get an email from somebody who makes some comment about the Lord coming back soon. And we all hope that's true, but I keep saying, when I look at how evil things got before the flood, we have a long way to go. When I look at how evil things were in the northern kingdom for two or three generations with live infant and child sacrifice taking place, uh, the Lord has, he has great patience. He gives people a lot of grace in terms of giving them enough time to completely destroy themselves. And so I don't see that the rapture is something that is going to happen anytime soon. I may be wrong. I would thank God if I'm wrong. But we also need to not live in some sort of bubble of wishful thinking that, 
I think the Lord's going to come back soon. Look how bad it's getting. I don't want to live through this. And it could get a lot worse. And if you and I were living in certain cities and certain states of this nation, it would be a lot worse. And we need to thank God every day that we live in Texas. But just because we live in we live in Texas doesn't mean there aren't a lot of people in Texas that are just as um, bad and evil and seeking to control us as you have in some of these liberal controlled uh, states. And it's just by the grace of God that we survive through another election. And that doesn't mean that our leaders are the greatest leaders we could have had, but they're the greatest leaders that were on the ticket. And that's sometimes all we can do is vote for the best one on the ticket, and they're not necessarily the ideal candidate according to certain standards, just as Jephthah was not an ideal candidate. God did not raise him up. There's no statement of that. But God did send uh, his spirit to strengthen Jephthah and to give him skill at winning the battle. So what we see here is just this collapse of the nation, And as it closes out the section, in verse 7 we read, And Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried among the cities of Gilead. Now, if you look back on your Bible to the last line of chapter 11, in the last verse, that the daughters of Israel went four days each year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. He is not referenced as Jephthah the Israelite. He is not referenced in terms of one of the 12 tribes. He is first and foremost Jephthah looking out for his own skin and doing what is best for Jephthah. Second, he is for doing what is best for Gilead. And third, for what's best for Israel. So we see that level of fragmentation and that he continues to be a man who is uh, more interested in his and what's best for him than anyone else. So we see a couple of different things that that are worth noting. One, I pointed out that there's an absence of any any critique, any evaluation from God, and so God has is leaving them to reap their own consequences from their own arrogance, and we see the. Uh, further uh, fragmentation of the nation, uh, one tribe against another, one Israelite against another, each one out for what is best for them. And we see the total destruction of arrogance when it is nationalized. And we're headed that way, and we have a lot of people who are that way, where we are nationalizing arrogance. And once that happens, we will no longer be a republic our democratic republic, we will be under a totalitarian system. That is the trend of history. Now, following this, there is a sort of a parenthetical note that is a bit of optimism. Things don't look so good when you look at what ha- the degradation under Gideon, the degradation under Jephthah, But as we saw before we started Jephthah, back at the beginning of verse uh, of chapter ten, you had the uh, reference to two judgeships: the judgeship of Tola and the judgeship of Jair. And what both of those pointed out is that that there was in areas of Israel there was prosperity, there were periods of blessing. And there were uh, times uh, when the people uh, were blessed by God. In the first example, you have uh, Tola, the son of Puah, and he is a man of Issachar, which is in the north, and he dwelt in the mountains of Ephraim, and he judged Israel for 23 years, and nothing negative is said. And then the second judge is Jair, a Gileadite, so he's in the Transjordan area, and he judges Israel for 22 years. And I want you to note that he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys, and they also had 30 towns. So this is on the Transjordan area. 
that's on the area uh, across across the Jordan here, uh, Gilead, where you have East Manasseh and you have the tribe of Gad and the tribe of Reuben. And so there's some prosperity there. The fact that they have he has 30 sons and they each ride on 30 donkeys indicates it's a time of peace and stability and tranquility. Now, when we come to uh, verse 8, we have Ibzan of Bethlehem who judged Israel, and he has 30 sons, and he gave away 30 daughters in marriage. So he has 60 children. Now, you just think you have trouble with two or three. He's got 60 children, and he has, uh, he gives away the 30 daughters in marriage, and he brought in 30 daughters from elsewhere to marry his sons. So it's a picture of a solid family. It's a picture of prosperity and stability. And this is taking place down in the tribal area of Judah of Bethlehem. And that is where he dies and he is buried. So when we look at the map, here is Bethlehem down here in the south. You have, uh, this is the Dead Sea over here. Jerusalem is covered over by the top of the red circle. That's Jerusalem, and Bethlehem is just about six or seven miles south of Jerusalem. And that's where he was. So there's a period of time, we don't know exactly when it was, but it's probably overlapped because Jephthah and Samson will overlap when we look at the time frame. Uh, they overlap. So this is probably during that time. And the other thing to note here is this is a time of peace before the Philistine uh, attacks begin because this area of Bethlehem is just a few miles from the city of Gath where Goliath will be from. So this is very close, but this indicates a time of tranquility, a time of peace and stability. So what happens in, in the trends of history is that a nation doesn't collapse overnight. It, it's gradual. And even though there are problems, like uh, during this time you have the problems with the Ammonites up on the, uh, in the Transjordan, but it's relatively calm and peaceful with a measure of prosperity down here in the tribe of Judah. The next one that is mentioned is in verse 11. After him, the Elon, the Zebulonite, judged Israel for 10 years, and then he died and was buried at Aijalon in the country of Zebulon. Now, that doesn't tell us a whole lot, except there seems to be a period of stability. There's no fights. He doesn't have to deliver the nation from an enemy. And Zebulon is up in uh, this area, sort of the north-central area of, uh, of, of Galilee. So that's all we know about uh, Elon the Zebulonite. And then we come to uh, the third judge, the last one in this parenthesis, Abdon, the son of Hillel, the Pirathonite, who judged Israel. Now, Pirathon, I saw, actually saw one of the other maps, but it's located right here. You're not going to be able to read it where you are, but it's in uh, the hill country of Samaria. So that's a small village there. And he had 40 sons. And 30 grandsons, again, a sign of prosperity, a sign of family stability, a time of tranquility. And 40 sons and 30 grandsons rode on 70 young donkeys. That is also a sign of peace, a sign of stability, having donkeys. And he judges Israel for eight years. So these probably occurred at overlapping times. They were regional judges in these areas, but it shows that there's a time of peace and stability uh, during that, that particular time. And so that brings us to the conclusion of our study of chapter 12. And next time, we're going to come back and we'll start with Samson. I don't know about you, but I remember when I was a child, and my mother had this big, thick book of Bible stories called Hurlbut's Stories of the Bible. That was a very common book to read Bible stories to kids with uh, back in the day. And I remember that the focus is always on Samson as a hero at the end. And so people come away and they think Samson's this great spiritual hero. And he is listed in Hebrews chapter 11. 
But as we get into Samson, we'll note that there's nothing good that is said about Samson, that Samson is a picture of everything that is going wrong in Israel, just as Jephthah's been a picture of the relativism and the uh, immorality in Israel. Jephthah is, you know, the son of a prostitute, indicates that his father uh, was not faithful in his marriage, and so you see the uh, collapse of the family there. Uh, you see the the way he treats his daughter. You see his self-absorption. He's just a a picture in one person of everything that's wrong with Israel at that this time. Samson's going to be worse. So we'll look at Samson, and that is another lengthy statement. You've got Judges 13, 14, uh, 15, and 16. So you have four chapters, second longest section next to Gideon. And we'll cover that. There's a lot of interesting things going on in the uh, Samson story. So we'll come back, um, not next week, but week after next, and we will begin with Samson. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be able to look at these things tonight, to see that what we are experiencing as we watch the chaos in our country, the chaos around the Western civilization, the rise and actions of, of tyranny during the COVID period. And Father, we, we recognize these signs and that we are going the same way other nations and other civilizations have gone in history as they have turned their back upon you. And as you um, pull back the restraints, as Romans 1 say, you give us over to our sins. You give us over to our arrogance. And we see that the uh, logical result of this is collapse. But nevertheless, even in the midst of this time period of collapse, we have times of, of uh, stability, uh, times of prosperity, and times of peace within the framework. And we just trust in you. We see your graciousness even in the midst of chaos in Israel, and we see your graciousness even in the midst of chaos to us at this time. And so we just trust in you that whatever happens, we will trust in you, and we know that our lives, our, uh, our de- the details of our lives, everything are in your hands, and we trust you to take care of us as we focus on the fact that we have a mission to be witnesses to you and to shine forth as lights in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.